Well, let me explain why we're not going to get as far as I thought we would. Uh, normally, your church is in the Gospels, and normally our church is in Ephesians, and so I thought it wouldn't be fair for me to try to jump into Ephesians when you haven't been with us for the last year and a half because we're kind of slow, and it wouldn't be fair for me to try to do John when I don't have the context that your pastor has, and I probably wouldn't, I'd probably say something I regretted. So uh, I thought I would do something in the Old Testament, which would be a lot different than where either of our churches are at. So what I'm planning on doing, whoops, that's the wrong clicker. What I'm planning on doing is King David in the Old Testament. Now, everybody has some, uh, some story or some knowledge of King David in the Old Testament. Uh, he's... He's really the most notable figure in the Old Testament. Like, there's more given about King David than any other character in the Old Testament except for Moses. So he's the his story is told more than anyone else except for Moses in the Old Testament. There's the big three in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, and David. And they really define, or most of Israel's history revolves around those three characters. If you understand them well, you understand a lot of what the Old Testament is really all about. But in case you don't know anything about King David, if there were that chance, I looked at some Bible dictionaries and tried to come up with the most concise synopsis of who King David is and what he did. And the Lexham Bible Dictionary said this, God raised David from humble origins as a shepherd from Bethlehem to rule as Israel's second king. The first king was King Saul, a man chosen by the people. Uh, really, uh, not by the Lord's direction, but the Lord accommodated Israel's sin or their pursuit of a king and allowed King Saul to be anointed. He wound up not being a good king. And so David uh, became the successor. There's a whole backstory to that. Many of you probably know that backstory. I don't have time for it. I've already said too much. It goes on to say, David led Israel to its pinnacle of power and glory and became the ideal for a future messianic leader that ultimately found fulfillment in David's descendant, Jesus. So out of all the kings of the Old Testament, Solomon plays a lot into the story as well, David's son, but they are types or pictures of what the Messiah will be like only without the failures and the sin. That's King David. It goes on to say, David showed success in various roles, including shepherd, poet, musician. You realize, you recognize or know that David wrote more of the Psalms than any other single writer. He was a military leader par excellence. Several chapters are devoted to all of his military conquests and successes, no matter who, where he was or who he was fighting with. He became king, and then the last one is he is covenantal recipient, which means he wasn't the one making the promises. The Lord made promises to David that he would be his dynasty would be established forever, which is again fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's that's King David. Now, what he's most known for, his most famous story, is in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and it's his victory over Goliath, uh, a Philistine giant. Uh, David really wasn't a boy. He was a young man, almost certainly. There's a lot, lot to be done on that to try to develop that point. But he's not like you sometimes see in children's Bible story books where he's, he's just a small lad. He's probably... Later teenage, maybe even early 20s. Uh, he doesn't fit Saul's armor. I, I get that because Saul was uh, a very tall man, a very big, strong man. And David wasn't that. He didn't fit the armor. But he was a young man and he defeated this giant named Goliath. If you've been into Sunday school classes at all, growing up, uh, you've heard lots of David and Goliath stories. Uh, they're pretty popular. Now, his most notable and infamous Sin or disobedience, something that brought uh, shame to what God was doing in Israel, is a story found long after he becomes king. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it is his sin with Bathsheba 
which resulted in the orchestration or murder of her husband Uriah. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, you probably didn't hear that story in a children's Sunday school class, though you might have. I checked the Bibles, and most of them actually do have the story. Uh, it's told somewhat carefully, but it is in most of my children's Bible story books. So that's Second Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be in chapters 11 to 16. It's going to be more than I can read in any one week. Uh, so I'm not going to try. I invite you to find your way to 2 Samuel chapters 11 to 16 because I'll have a lot of verses on the screen, but there will be a couple occasions where there's just too many verses to be read, and you'll do better if you can just follow along with where I am reading in 2 Samuel 11 to 16. Initially, I was going to focus on 13 to 16, and for those of you that got our little half-sheet bulletin, it probably indicates as much, but uh, as I got into 13 to 16, I realized that story can't be told without starting at least at chapter 11. So this is not going to be a one and done. Our church uh, fellowship's going to take probably a, another week's break, maybe even two more weeks, to tell the whole story of 2 Samuel chapters 11 to 16. Let me open us in word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. It's all valuable. It's all written for a purpose. And I pray that some of those purposes, the most important ones that we ought to get this morning, would be those that you lay upon our minds and upon our hearts. I pray that we would count all scriptures precious, that it would encourage us, it would challenge us, it would correct us and rebuke us as the case may be. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. There's two main themes I want to cover this morning, just so you know where I'm going, because I don't typically just do the application at the end. The application is kind of get, will get woven in through the verses we're going to do. But the two themes you should look out for, number one, and that's kind of hard to see, but it says, uh, the ruinous consequences of sin. I want you to see, and it probably won't be hard, I want you to see that there are terrible consequences to sinful choices. I want you to see that so much that it scares you not to sin. Now, no matter how long you've been a Christian, and no matter what is in your heart on this Sunday morning, you will sin. But we ought not to treat it casually or lightly or simply expect it and dismiss it. Sin ought to scare you. I want you to get that out of these chapters. That it's a terrible thing and there are consequences to be paid. So much so that it affects the way that you pray. Because if you have a right understanding of sin and how dangerous it is and how close it is at hand, it will cause you to pray differently than what you uh, ordinarily may pray. Let me give you two examples. In Psalm 119, you might pray something along these lines. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimony, and not the covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Those are really good prayer requests. Prayer requests with a, the center of it all is, Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies. Give me that inclination. Give me that desire, that motivation that wants to know you and walk in paths of obedience more than I want to be selfish because that's very natural to me. That's a really good prayer. I want you to get that when you see the consequences of sin. Secondly, another good prayer would be Psalm 141. This is a Psalm of David. David prayed this prayer. Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That's a pretty good prayer request, right? Right? To set a guard over your mouth and over your lips. Verse 4, Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. 
to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Again, it's this prayer that God incline myself to you, that my life would be oriented to who you are and your purposes and your wisdom and not to myself. Instead of bringing all my requests before God and say, God, make my life work as I build my castles in the sand. My prayer would be, God, incline me to you so that I fit in with what you are doing, your gracious purposes. I want you to be scared by sin. Secondly, what I want you to recognize as a theme is that God's goodness and grace and mercy is greater than our sin. So I want you to get something about sin, but I realize if all I do is talk about the horrific effects of sin, it could leave you more down than where I mean to leave you because it's only, it's in understanding the effects of sin that you have an appreciation for the beauty of the gospel. And I want you to see the beauty of the gospel. But the beauty of the gospel will especially be magnificent against the backdrop of the blackness of sin. So those are the two themes we're going to see as we work through these chapters, both today and then uh, for my church, uh, again, continuing next Sunday as well. Let me start with then with this, building on who David is. His early years are, as king are summarized by, I found one little verse in the first few chapters of Second uh, Samuel chapter 8. There's one little verse that summarizes what his kingship looked like as things were going pretty well. It's found in chapter 8, in verse 15, it reads, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Now you'll remember that because we're going to come back to it. He administered judgment and justice to all his people. But then we go from chapter 8, if we turn the page, we're going to go to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we're going to see David's sin against Bathsheba and then against Uriah. And it's summarized or it's disclosed, but then it's summarized in the very last two verses of chapter 11. And we're going to revisit chapter 11 in a little bit. But just for right now, it's kind of summarized at the end of chapter 11 with these words. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her, for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's how chapter 11 ends. And then we turn the page again and go to chapter 12. And chapter 12 begins verse 1 with these words, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. What David had done has displeased the Lord. So chapter 12 opens with the Lord sent a prophet to David to confront him regarding his sin. Now again, we're going to come back to the story a little bit later. We're not going to come back to it right now. But I need you to know that's what happened. The result of, of David confronting, or Nathan confronting David, is found in verse 13, which reads, So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. David repented. He recognized his sin. And that's the biggest difference between a king who who the Lord withdrew his spirit from his kingship, King Saul, and David. See, David sinned as King Saul sinned. They both sinned. Both were imperfect kings and imperfect men, imperfect fathers. But Saul always came up with reasons why. He always came up with excuses. It wasn't really his fault. He really wasn't as disobedient as what it may have seemed. It's really a misunderstanding and David, when he's confronted by Nathan, says, I've sinned against the Lord. And he recognized his sin. And you can read about that psalm and prayer of repentance in Psalm chapter 51. Well, it goes on in chapter 12. Uh, moving forward, Nathan tells David what to expect. I've confronted you with your sin. You've confessed your sin. Here's what you can expect. I'm gonna, it's a good news, bad news situation. I'm gonna start with the good news, though the good news comes last in the way Nathan tells the story. 
Nathan starts with the bad. I'm going to start with the good. The good news is in verse 14, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's the good news. The Lord's put away your sin. You shall not die. The bad news is number one in verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house. The bad news is in verse 11, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And then the bad news is in verse 14, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. A bit of good news, but there are consequences and there's a lot of bad news mixed in with Nathan's Nathan's continuing word to David. And so I think what it tells me, and I'm sorry the red shows up so poorly, but it, uh, what we're going to find out in those next five chapters is a demonstration of all that news. The David's sin is put away. You will find it in the next five chapters, but you will also see the sword not departing from his house. You will see his wives taken by his son Absalom concubines that were left behind in Jerusalem and the child that Bathsheba bears to David will surely die. That will, that will play out over those next five chapters. Uh, and so those next five chapters are going to be marked by uh, sexual exploitation, immorality, deceit, hatred, unforgiveness, lying, insurrection, rebellion, the sword not departing from his house. It's a serious problem. So we all, well, it leads to probably a big principle would be this. Even forgiven sin has consequences. Even forgiven sin has consequences. Now, those consequences are, are determined by a sovereign God. So sometimes those consequences are very severe. I mean, I've seen Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying. David isn't struck dead for murdering a man, orchestrating it, and committing adultery. And that's put away, but there are consequences to the sin. Sometimes those sin, those consequences are especially acute to yourself. Emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically. Sometimes those consequences on some level affect the sphere of people in your life. Other family members, the entire church, culture. For, for, for David, it's the nation of Israel are affected by the consequences of, of his sin. In the, in, that springs back to chapter 11. So those consequences are very real. Even though the sin itself in David's life is forgiven based upon his confession. Let's build on this. Chapter 13, what we find, it opens with these words. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Ammon, the son of David, loved her. So let me introduce these characters to you. There are three. The three characters are Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar. Now what you should see, first of all, is that two of these are sons of David. Absalom is the son of David. Amnon is the first son of David. He's the crown prince. When David dies, everybody expects Amnon is going to be king. He's firstborn. I think firstborn son should have a lot. As it turns out, since I'm a firstborn, but he's the firstborn king. He's expected to be the king when David dies, but he's not named first. Whoops. Absalom is named first because this is really for the next six chapters. This isn't a story about Amnon, though Amnon is the one that is taking a lead role in the early chapters of of chapter 13 or the early check, the early verses of chapter 13. It's really a story about Absalom. So, and then you've got Tamar, and Tamar is Absalom's full sister. Tamar is Amnon's half-sister. Absalom and Amnon have different mothers. David is their father. They're half-brothers. Tamar is a half-sister to Amnon. Amnon has a grossly improper interest in Tamar. I'm not going to read all that story. Uh, we don't do children's church at our church. I don't think you have children's church here. We're not going to read that entire story. But let me tell you how it ends. The outcome to this part of the story. It says, Then Tamar 
put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because of what he had done to his sister Tamar. Well, let's start with Absalom. Absalom's response to what happened never should have happened. Absalom shows care for his sister Tamar. In fact, later when it talks about Absalom's descendants, he had some sons who must have died early for because of what's recorded a little bit later on. But he did have some sons who didn't make it to adulthood. He also had a daughter who he also named Tamar after his sister who had been violated. So he expressed care for her and he said, don't take it to heart. Like in other words, this, this isn't on you. You did nothing wrong. This wasn't your fault. This was wrong. But don't take it to heart. What's interesting is what he tells her not to do is what he does. He very much does take it to heart. He doesn't forget. He's not going to let it forget. He's, he won't forget it. But his response to his older half-brother Amnon is he speaks neither good nor bad. But when he eventually acts... He does something that he ought not to have done. So he doesn't say anything. But when he does do something, it was the wrong thing to do. That's Absalom. Now let's look at David's response to what happened. It tells me when David heard of all these things, he was very angry. It's like, that's it? You're very angry? You don't do anything in support of your daughter Tamar or you don't do anything against the crown prince Amnon. And it says he heard of all these things. In fact, David was actually unwittingly part of what transpired. He was used and duped into into incidents that led to what never should have happened. And he's angry. But that seems kind of disengaged. That seems inappropriate. That seems a little short of the situation and what it ought to require. That all he is, is very angry. What happened to the king of chapter 8 and verse 15? So David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Where's the judgment, David? Where's the justice? Well, he's angry. But he doesn't do anything. Why doesn't he do anything? Now, I've got to be careful because the Bible really doesn't assign motives or reasons why. But we've got five, six, seven chapters if you want to, depending on how much you want to embrace into this whole narrative. And you can kind of read into the story. You can kind of figure some things out based upon, I know he, what he was like in chapter 8. And I know in chapter 13 now, he's merely very angry. That's hard to read, but it says perhaps administering judgment and justice to Amnon seems hypocritical to David. Because what Amnon has done is kind of an ugly picture of what David did back in chapter 11. And it feels kind of pharisaical to bring down judgment on your son when really you didn't do much better as an older man in chapter 11. And so I wonder, or it seems to me that that David's kind of paralyzed. He kind of doesn't know what to do. He has a sense, he has a knowledge of what's right and wrong. But how do you speak to that issue in light of his own sin with Bathsheba and Uriah back in chapters 11 and 12? Let's go back and look at those chapters. Chapter 11, it says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. 
So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba? She's got a name. She's not just a person to be used. She's got a name. The daughter of Eliam, which it's a little bit debatable, but one of David's mighty men is named Eliam. I think her father is one of David's mighty men. So she's she's a, a real person, a real woman. She's somebody's daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, another one of David's mighty men. Her dad is part of your elite fighting group. Her husband is part of, part of your elite fighting group. She's somebody's daughter. She's somebody's wife. But it sadly says, then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. She took her. Now let's fast forward to chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, here's Nathan's confrontation, and it begins with a story, kind of a parable. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nursed. And he grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take the same word David took her. This rich man refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David took Bathsheba. The rich man took the poor man's little ewe lamb that was like a family member. That's the story. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan turns and looks at him and he says, you are the man. This is very interesting in light of David's judgment. David finds out he is the man of the story. David's judgment is this man shall surely die. Nathan's word to David is, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. You deserve to die. By your own, out of your own mouth, you deserve to die. But the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. But it's also interesting, David's judgment is, he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Fourfold. Now, this is, this is, this, this borders on wild speculation. So, Take it for what it's worth. It's, it's fairly wild. But out of all of David's sons and with all the wives he had and the concubines he acquired, they're not all named. But of all the sons that David had, four of them met with very tragic deaths. Bathsheba's pregnancy after the child is born, that child dies. Amnon, his oldest son, the crown prince, will die. Absalom, who is an insurrectionist and engages in treason against his father, will die. And then the fourth-born son, Adonijah, will also die at the hands of King Solomon. David has four sons named in Scripture that all meet very destructive, untimely, tragic deaths. I don't know that that's a connection to he shall restore fourfold, but I don't know that it isn't. And it's at least interesting. It seems to me that an unintended result of David's sin is that he is now reluctant to take a strong moral stand. How can he speak to his son Amnon about this terrible sin that he's committed when David knows it wasn't that long before he'd committed a similarly atrocious sin in taking a man's wife for himself. And to secure that, 
he orchestrated her husband's death. How do you speak to moral issues in light of that? What do you do in light of that? David, who before administered judgment and justice in all the land, because that's what a king is supposed to do. He's not to regard the face. He's to administer fairly and rightly what ought to be done in each situation. Now, all of a sudden, he's paralyzed. He has nothing to, nothing to say. He merely is very wroth in the old King James. He's very angry at what's taken place. The Interpreter's Bible, which was, uh, this is the 1953 edition, it says it offers words on what David ought to have done in dealing with Amnon and even being aware of his own sin with Bathsheba, what he ought to have done. It reads, for what David should have And what he still might do depended like upon his admitting his own sin to his sons and sharing with them both the discipline and the forgiveness he had himself received. In other words, David is a king, and I don't know to what extent he did or did not do this, but David is a king, doesn't set himself up as, I am the Lord's Messiah, the one who will take away your sin. David recognizes he's a sinner himself. And so before his own family, he needs to acknowledge and confess and admit that he is a sinner in need of God's grace, just the same as everybody else. And then he can extend that same forgiveness or judgment as the case may be, because he's received both from the Lord himself. Let me apply this. Apply it to parents. Ephesians tells me that parents, particularly fathers, should raise their children in the instruction of the Lord. See, this ties into Ephesians. That's where we're gonna, that's where we're gonna be. We're right on the verge of chapter six. Fathers should raise their children in the instruction of the Lord. Not because fathers have got it all figured out. Maybe when you're very young, you grow up and you think your father knows all, you know, he can do what he wants, he can, he can have dessert before supper, he doesn't have to eat vegetables, I mean, all these perks that come with fatherhood, but fathers don't have it all figured out, and they still stumble, and they still fail, and they still sin. But that doesn't mean fathers aren't challenged with the responsibility of raising their children in the instruction of the Lord. Don't wait till you've got it perfect, you'll have nothing to say. Another way to apply it would be to apply it to Christians. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says we should speak to one, speak the truth in love to one another. Now, to put that with Jesus' words, clearly I need to examine my own life and get the log out of my eye before I go around pointing out specks in anybody else's eye. So I'm not saying we should not examine ourselves first. What I am saying is we ought to examine ourselves. And out of that examination, out of that recognition that we are sinners in need of grace, that then we are able to speak that same, you are a sinner also in need of God's grace to other people in our lives and they to us. Because that's the way it works. If I've got nothing to say in love, if I've got no truth to say in love, because I think I've got to have arrived in order to say it, I'm missing the point. David's got nothing to say. One last application. The church should preach the holiness and mercy of God. The church is charged with declaring sin and salvation. There's a lot of sin in our culture. Guess what? There's a lot of sin in the church. There's a lot of sin in the pulpit. The church is charged with proclaiming and recognizing and calling sin for what it is. And in doing that, out of that emerges the hope of God's salvation in Christ. But you'll never appreciate that hope if you never see sin for what it is. So those are good words of application out of all this. Let's go to scene two in chapter 13. Scene 2 in chapter 13 is contained in verses 23 to 33. And this is where there are more verses than what I can show on the screen. So if you're in your Bible to 2 Samuel, I don't know if I said first, but 2 Samuel chapter 13, let me read scenes 2 to you. This is from uh, the New King James Version. It reads like this. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor which is near Ephraim. 
So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shares. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. So he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass, while they were on the way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground. And all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, so this is a nephew. Jonadab is actually one who gave counsel to Amnon in such a way that led to the violation of his sister. So Jonadab is not a good individual. But in verse 32, then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. Only Amnon is dead. This is scene two of what took place in chapter 13, which never should have taken place, and David is very angry. In scene two, it opens with the occasion of sheep sharing, which you understand, like in most cultures, that is a big event, that all the guys want to go. It's like a Super Bowl party to go to the sheep shearing event. And so David invites his father and all of his servants and all the sons to come to the sheep shearing party, and the father doesn't want to go. He's like, David seems very inactive. David seems very disengaged after chapter 8, or at least by chapter 11. When he doesn't go off to war, instead he stays back in Jerusalem. So, but Absalom urges his father in verse 25. David's already said, I don't, and, and to make, to make it clear, Absalom doesn't want David there. Absalom has good reason to believe David's not going to the sheep sharing. But part of the ruse is to act like he wants David there. David says, no, Absalom urges him to go. That word urges in in Hebrew means to press, to breach, or to break down. There's lots of good examples of that. I've got two listed on the screen, which we're not going to take time to look at. But in 1 Samuel chapter 28, do you remember after the prophet slash uh, priest Samuel had died? And Saul is wanting to go into battle, and he wants a good word. And so he goes to a medium, a witch, and she conjures up uh, the spirit of Samuel. You remember that story? And, and Samuel says, uh, basically, Saul, you and your sons are going to die in battle tomorrow. Not a good word. And after that incident is over in, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul's understandably distraught. He's been rebuked again. And, and the witch of Endor, the medium of Endor, urges him to eat. He doesn't want to eat. He's just been told he's going to die in battle. But they urge him to eat. They press him. They're trying to break down his resistance. And he chooses to eat. Nehemiah chapter 4 is another good example where they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's many, many hundreds of years later. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and there are some mockers that come and say, even a fox walking on that wall would break through. Not very impressive. It wouldn't take much to push your wall over. So what I I want you to get is that Absalom is pressing his father. I want you to go. I really want you to go. He's like a impetuous child. I want, I want this. This is my big day. I'm in charge of the sheep shearing. This is a big deal to me, dad. Please. He's pressing his dad and his dad still says, no, I'm not going, but I'll bless you. 
So, Amnon urges his father to let Amnon go. That's where he, that's what he really wanted all along. And his father again is like, well, why should Amnon go? And he urges him, I want somebody there. If you can't be there, send the vice president. He's the next most important person in the kingdom. He's the crown prince. He said neither good nor bad about Amnon. There doesn't seem to be any hard feelings, though he harbors the hatred in his heart. And David says, all right, Amnon and the other sons can go. And so they do. And with that, you've got the plot executed in verse 28. Watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to him, strike Amnon, then kill him. Does that sound like something David did? Did he try to execute his perverted will by plying somebody with wine to cover up his sin? I think all this that's happening in these chapters has to remind David of himself. And though the Lord has put away his sin, I think, I mean, I hate to be real psychological about things because that's really not who I am. But it seems like David is having a hard time to get past his own sin that has been forgiven by the Lord. Because he sees in Amnon a lot of himself. And he's going to see in Absalom a lot of himself. And it's not pretty. Because sin has consequences. So that's the plot. The execution is in verse 29. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. They fled because the way it works in that part of the world, and parts of the world still today, is that if one son has a lot of other sons, a lot of other brothers, who may be rivals to the kingdom, what you do is you kill all the other brothers. And you're the only one, you're the only heir left. And so, I mean, maybe you were not the, the brightest, uh, the highest card in the deck. But if all the other cards in the deck have been thrown out and you're the only card left, you're the only surviving heir, then you get to be king. So the other sons can only imagine if he's killed the crown prince, he's going to kill us all. That's not true. They don't know. Absalom's, he's smart. He's, He's been very deceptive. Nobody, very few individuals know what is in his heart. He's not after all the sons. I don't think he's after the kingdom at this point. He just wants Amnon dead because he's never forgot what he did to his sister. Let's go to scene three, the last scene of chapter 13. This is in verses 34 to 39. It reads like this. Then Absalom fled. And the young man who's keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked. And there, many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came. And they lifted up their voice and wept. And the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of uh, Mayahub, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Now, there, there's a really difficult verse here, which I'll kind of explain why it's difficult and not satisfy you with a resolution, at least this morning, but at least introduce the tension. What you see in scene three, first of all, it tells me three times Absalom fled. He's accomplished what he wanted to do. He got vengeance on Amnon because of what he'd done to his sister. And then he fled and he went to the king of Geshur. You want to know why he went there? It's a great reason. That's his grandfather. That's his grandfather. His mother, the wife, one of the wives of David is the king's daughter. It's a, in those, in those, that part of the world, I don't, it doesn't specifically tell me, but they made political wedding marriages. It's one way to kind of ensure peace between a, a people group. You live here, your neighbor lives there, just to ensure that there's no fighting amongst us. If we have a, a combined marriage, there's good reason not to fight each other. So his grandfather on his mother's side is the king of Geshur. He'll obviously be welcome there. What grandparent isn't going to welcome their child when they come? Even if they are in a spot of trouble. 
So he goes to his grandfather and he lives there for three long years. Now, David's response to all this, number one, he mourns Amnon. And the way I'm reading it, he mourns his son Amnon. He's mourning for three years. I think David really had a heart for this son. Maybe it's because he reminded of himself even in all the worst ways, but maybe in some good ways too. I don't read any good qualities about Amnon. But I think David knew that he was the crown prince. He was the one that should have followed him. David was angry with him, but he never really disciplined him. But now that he's dead, he mourns him for three years. Maybe now he's thinking, I wish I'd taken care of the situation instead of just being angry. I wish I had addressed it with justice and maybe mercy too. I don't know what it would have looked like instead of just being angry. But now it's too late. His son Amnon is dead. But it also tells me, and this is where it's extremely difficult to understand, it says he longed to go to Absalom. Now, I know the way that you want to read this because of the way I've always read it until I tried to study it out. The way that sounds like is he's mourning the lost son Amnon, but there's a part of him that really wants to be reconciled to his son Absalom, but he doesn't know how to do it. He's estranged from his son. And for three years this goes on, where there's no communication. They're not sending birthday cards back and forth. They're not trading Christmas gifts. There's no relationship, but he he longs for his son. Reconciliation, forgiveness. How do I address it? How do I make best out of this horrible situation that's taken place that all started with his sin with Bathsheba and then the death of Uriah? How do you make that right? But there's another possibility. If all we do is end chapter 13 this way, that's I would be convinced that's what David wishes. That's what he's hoping for. But in fact, chapter 14 follows chapter 13, which is where we will be, where I will be next week in chapter 14. And and the fact that David is longing to be with his son for reconciliation and forgiveness and to start a process of what went wrong and I will confess my sin and you will confess your sin and, and rather there being all this healing, chapter 14 doesn't suggest that's what it means when David is longing for his son. I'm going to give it to you from, um, it's, it's not really, it's a very loose translation. It's called the Contemporary English Version. It reads this way. David still felt so sad over the loss of Amnon that he wanted to take his army up there and capture Absalom. That's a little bit different, (laughs) a different emotion. Not that he's longing for reconciliation, but he's now longing with a, a certain amount of vengeance or vindication or justice that what Absalom has done is wrong and he needs to be brought to justice. I want to go up there and get him. I want to give him his what for. And I think chapter 14 kind of bears out that's probably the case. Now, there's a scholar in Australia who wrote a Bible commentary. He's he's pastored. uh, He's he's involved in academics. He takes this approach and he says this. His name is Andrew Reed. He wrote, he he translates or paraphrases this way. But King David mourned for his son Amnon every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go against Absalom in battle for he grieved concerning Amnon because he was dead. He wants to bring justice to Absalom. He's not looking for reconciliation. And then chapter 14 opens. Now Joab, the son of Zerah, knew that the king's heart was set against Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. And another little parable is told. Another little parable is told, which I think I'll only briefly summarize next week. But in that little parable, what what David's going to realize is you are less forgiving of your son Absalom than what God was forgiving of you. You want vengeance. You want vindication. You want to bring justice to Absalom. When you received mercy. And so there's a change of heart. And there's reason why I think Joab did that. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Joab is his nephew. Pretty much everybody in the story is all family related. 
Because sin, your sin affects family more likely than it affects people outside of family. Sinful choices have consequences. But out of all this, if you want a good word, out of all this, God will fulfill His promises to David. Solomon will build a temple to the Lord. And the holiness of God will come down in that temple and the glory of the Lord will fill the temple. There will be good brought from this because God works all things for His glory. Even those things which ought not to have happened by our own sinful choices and determinations. God, our Father, I thank you for uh, this word. It's uh, Scripture. It's intriguing. It's, it's interesting. But I, I pray that it's not just interesting as you see a plot unfold and, and you understand some of the nuance of what's happening. I pray that it really does serve as a warning to myself, uh, to each person here about our own sin. It comes with consequences. And we can't disregard your character. We can't disregard your holiness. And we can't disregard the fact that we can carry a copy of your word with us wherever we go. And then if we think we can live like we want, and selfishly and to ourselves, that it doesn't come at a cost. God, I pray that we would be so convicted by that thought that it changes the way we pray. Incline our hearts to yourself. That you would keep us from destroying ourselves. That you keep us from our own sin and fleshly desires. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your church. And I thank you for your word. All those things are given to us that we might walk in paths of obedience. I pray for our children. I pray for our grandchildren. Some of which are walking in paths of obedience. Some of which are not. I pray, God, that what has been sown in their heart as the gospel would resonate in such a profound way that they recognize Christ as Lord and Savior and our greatest hope and our greatest reward. It's in his name I pray, amen.